Let's go to the book of Luke this morning, chapter 14. And I want to do something just a little bit different before I open up the word this morning. I want to... Did I do that? Did I... Okay. Because I'm going to die up here if I have to listen to that. Can I boot this off the stage? Um, I want to do something. Whoa. I don't know. Maybe somebody doesn't want this message preached this morning or something. Um, but um, before we get into the word this morning, there's a couple things. It's always apparent to me, and this week was one of those weeks where we think we go Sunday to Sunday, and then we walk in here on Sunday and we put on a happy face for everybody, and we leave here thinking we have fooled everybody. Um, can we just understand right now that we're not fooling anybody? Some of us have had a really rough week, haven't we? Some of us have had some really tough stuff, and it's not just a week. It's a, um, here, I'll let you play with that. Um, it's not just the week. Maybe it's a tough season of life we're going through. Um, got a text this morning from George and Joy's son, Jason, and he just asked that we would continue to pray for George. And honestly, we're praying for a miracle, folks. We're praying for a miracle. Um, and... You know, there's, there's a hurting family. And they're not the only one. He really said that. If it didn't fix it, just throw it away. Um, but honestly, I have no idea what all of you have gone through this week and what, what, what's happening in your lives. But I know this, that God is gracious. And also this, also know this, that, that, that a week just really kind of presses in on you, and one of the last things you want to do after a hard week is sit and pay attention to some guy drone on for 45 minutes. But there's life in God's Word. Amen. There's life there. There's hope there. And that's why we preach it. And that's why we're going through the Gospel of Luke together. But this morning, would you allow me just to pray for all of us this morning? That, that, that God would come and meet with us by His Spirit, that, that somehow, some way, we can lay off the past week that we've been through, or maybe the things that we're not looking forward to in the coming weeks, so that for the next 40 minutes or so, that we can just focus solely on His Word and hear His voice as He speaks to us this morning. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we do that? Father, it's true. We, we all walk into this room with varied experiences. We, we walk into this room. Some of us have had one of the best weeks we've had in, in years this past week. Some of us are, are excited about the prospects that lie ahead for the next week. Some of us, honestly, if we're just really truthful with you, just don't even want to be here this morning. Some of us are hurting beyond belief. We're tired of faking it in front of our church family. And the good thing is, 
that you see through all of that. You see right to our hearts. And you care about our hearts this morning. And we rest in that, Father. We need that. We, we need a loving Heavenly Father this morning to care about us. And we need you to care about us enough to tell us the truth. And, and I'm so glad that this morning in our text in Luke that Jesus just cuts through it all and tells us the truth about the cost of following him. But Lord, I do pray for those in need. And, and Lord, our hearts right now, we pray for, for the Glenn family. We lift up George to you. And Lord, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and I know doctors think they understand everything, but I also know that you can heal George if you so desire. So I pray for Joy right now that, that she would, would feel your peace, that she would know your grace. I pray for the rest of the family, Lord. There's children, there's grandchildren, and they're all deeply affected by this, and we pray for your grace for them all. Lord, as we look into your word, it's in your word that we find life. It's in your word that we find hope. And so I pray that that would be the case this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a great misunderstanding when it comes to the gospel. There's a great misunderstanding when it comes to the purpose of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and there's also a great misunderstanding about the price of the gospel as well. And in our text this morning, Jesus just comes right out and, and he lays it on the line in a way that only Jesus could do. But there's many a person who has sat in church, maybe they've listened to, to a, a TV preacher or on the radio or, or on the internet. There's many a person who has heard the gospel and say they believe the gospel. I'm guessing that in a room this morning, you showed up for church on Sunday morning, just about all of us in this room would say that we believe the gospel. But that's not enough. Because it's not just enough to believe the gospel. And Jesus is going to present that to us today. He's going to say that not only do you have to believe the gospel, you have to count the cost of believing the gospel, and you have to make some determinations. And you have to make some determinations about what the gospel says about your life specifically. Sadly, the average Christian church presents the gospel in a very weak, man-centered way. I don't say that pridefully. I'm not saying that we're better than any church, but this is the truth of it, that, that the gospel is presented as here is Jesus and he's here to solve all your problems. Folks, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus, when he comes into your life, will create some problems. Some of you know that. You've experienced that. Or Jesus is presented this way. Jesus is here to allow you to fulfill yourself. That's a bunch of hooey straight from the pit of hell. Jesus is not here so that you can fulfill yourself. Jesus is here so that you can die to yourself. It becomes very feeling-oriented. And this text of Scripture this morning cuts through all of that. The gospel is radically not those things. It is God-centered. It is not man-centered. The gospel requires a denying of self. The gospel re requires a complete submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. That's what the gospel is. One of my great concerns, honestly, 
as I start to get older in ministry, yes, I said those words, one of my great concerns is that there are and there have been people under my care, under my watch, and the care of the other elders of this church who say they believe the gospel, but their lives don't reflect any submission to Jesus Christ. That's a problem, people. It's not enough to say you believe the gospel, you have to be submitted to that gospel. Our text today is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you've never been here or you don't come that frequently and you're here this morning and you're like, whoa, did I... And you're here this morning and you're like, man, did I walk into it this morning. Let me assure you, we have been going through the book of Luke. We just happen to be at this text today. Those of you who have been here week by week, am I telling them the truth? Yeah. Okay. But our text is, it's a hard one because Jesus lays it on the line. And he's going to do it for, for a very good reason. And we find that reason right there in verse 25. And, and we need to understand this. In verse 25 of chapter 14, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, I know Jesus is presented many times as a front runner, as a really popular dude, as, as something that everybody really loved to follow. And, and let's hear, here's the thing. Jesus never set out to be a front runner. Jesus never set out to be the most popular speaker. He never set out to create a big following. In fact, when it was all said and done, when he left this earth, there were very few who were there. He wasn't out trying to bring a big following. And yet he has this big following. And he's going to do something about it in our text today. It contrasts with what we see in what I'm going to call popular American Christianity. Anytime a guy gets a big following, what does he do? He sells himself to that following to keep them happy. Does he not? Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus does the exact opposite. He's really, literally, with his words, he knows he's going to run people off. So let's look at this text this morning. I'm going to read verses 25 through 35, and then in the time we have, we're going to unpack it this morning. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, let me read that again. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let me give you my outline this morning as we begin. Three simple points. One, we're going to see the incredibly high cost of discipleship. The incredibly high cost of discipleship. Secondly, we're going to see that it requires a personal calculation. There's a personal calculation that each one of us must make. And then thirdly, we're going to see that it requires a great commitment. This, this call to discipleship is a, is a call that requires great commitment. So as I mentioned to you, the setting is that Jesus is now being followed by a great crowd. We see it there in verse 25. Now, we have mentioned before, as we've gotten from primarily from like Luke 11, 12 on, that, that Jesus' popularity is starting to wane a little bit. He's definitely not popular with the religious leaders anymore. Okay? But, but still with the common people, there, there is a level of popularity. Remember, when Jesus shows up for the triumphal entry at Jerusalem, there's a pretty large following following him in, right? So the common people are still behind Jesus. And so now they're, they're coming to him because, let's be honest, his preaching is powerful, it's interesting, and who wouldn't want to be where a guy is just saying a word or doing an action and people are getting healed? That would be pretty cool to be there, right? And so these people are following him wherever he's going. And remember, he's headed to Jerusalem. And quite honestly, Jesus doesn't want to lead them on a path to hell. He doesn't want to lead them on a path to hell. He wants to explain to them where this path is going. And he wants to explain to them what, what the cost is and what it's going to cost to follow him. Because you see, Jesus isn't interested, as I said before, in popularity or big followings or a road show with groupies. Jesus' one concern was to come and reveal the Father and make followers who would love and follow himself. Jesus wasn't here to sell eternal fire insurance to anyone who wanted to buy it. And yet sometimes I think that's what we view the gospel as being. It's my little insurance policy for hellfire in the future. Jesus wasn't selling insurance, and he wasn't selling a feel-good elixir for one's soul. Jesus was preaching a message that when believed and responded to will radically change a person's life. Radically change it. And so first, we want to look at this incredibly high cost of discipleship. Look with me at verse 26. If, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Be honest with me, church. Does that sound harsh this morning? Come on, be honest. Does that sound harsh? It sounds really harsh. Okay? That, that, that sounds really rough. We have to consider this in its context, and we have to consider the way an Eastern mind would think, okay? This is in the same Bible that says, children, obey your parents and honor your father and mother. This is in the same Bible that says that, that husbands are to love their wives, and it says in the book of Titus that wives are to love their husbands. So is the Bible contradicting itself here, church? Does the Bible do that? No. So we have to understand what's going on here. We have to understand what's going on here. Jesus is not saying, if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I have to divorce my wife and I have to disown my children. It might be cheaper, but that's not what he's calling us to do. What is he saying here? 
What is he saying? He's not contradicting himself. This is a statement of priority or preference here. What do I mean by that? This is a statement of priority or preference. Jesus is saying that, that, that I am calling here. Jesus is saying I'm calling for extreme devotion to me. And what he's saying is that our love for Christ ought to make our love for our families look like hate. What he's saying is, is that my love and my devotion for Jesus ought to make my love for my significant other teens. You know, that one that you go, oh. don't laugh. You guys were once that way, too. Some of you still are. What's wrong with you people? The love that you have for your children... You would do anything for your children. You'd follow them all over the world to play sports. You'd, you'd, you'd do anything you can to keep them safe. And what Jesus is saying is that love that you and I have for our family members ought to look like hate when it's compared to the love that we have for him. And so this is an incredibly high price. It's a, it's a relational price. It's a relational price. For some of us, it plays out in real life. Some of you know, I've talked with many of you, and, and I know the heartbreak that you have. Because you love Jesus, you have to choose what he desires for your life, and it brings you into direct conflict with what your family desires for you. And you have to make that choice, and you have to make it daily, and it costs a lot. You see... To be a follower of Jesus isn't just to come to church on Sunday, sing a couple songs, lift my hands, get all excited about it, walk out and say, hey, I'm a Christian for another week. There's a relational cost to be paid. Secondly, there's a personal cost to be paid. Do you see it there at the end of verse 26? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say that I just have to, to have a love that makes my love for all my family members pale, but my love for myself has to pale whenever I put it next to my love for Jesus. And right there, that gets every single one of us right in the heart. Because we all are wired to love ourselves. We're all wired to take good care of ourselves. We're all wired to think that we're the most important person in the world. He is not calling for self-loathing here. He, he's, he's not calling here for, for us to just to, to stand in front of the mirror and say, I hate you, I hate you, you're so ugly, you're so terrible. That's not what Jesus is calling for here. Okay, That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this, that when you and I truly submit to the gospel in our life and we follow Christ, we go from this place where we are the ruler of our own hearts and we allow somebody else to rule our hearts. And for some of us who are still wrestling with that in Christ, it is still a battle, isn't it? Because we want to rule our own hearts. Can I submit to you this morning, there can only be one ruler in your heart. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters. You can only have one ruler of your heart. 
It's either going to be you or you're going to allow Christ to rule your heart. How far does this selflessness go? Because, I mean, at this point, it's sounding pretty bleak. But then when you read verse 27, it sounds downright painful, doesn't it? Notice what Jesus says. This, this personal cost, it, 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 he's saying, it may cost me my life. Notice verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we read that, and we don't really relate to what Jesus is saying here. The only time, the only time, the only time in this society that you picked up a cross is if you were carrying it for somebody who was going to die or you were carrying your own cross to the place where you were going to die. Crosses were always associated with gory, gruesome deaths. Now, I realize we live in really close to Appalachia, and you can drive around, you can see three crosses out in somebody's field. It looks so peaceful and serene and so wonderful. Folks, that is an instrument of death. We put crosses on our walls. We have them on the front of our church. When was the last time when you looked at the, the cross on the front of the church and understood that that cross symbolizes a really bloody, gruesome instrument of death? Amen. And here Jesus is saying, you want to be my follower? Hey, mass crowds out here, all of you who just love me, think I'm so wonderful. You want to follow me? Guess where this is going? It's going to a cross. And if you're going to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. And don't cheapen your cross by saying, well, it's, it's, the, it's the family that I have to put up with. It's the wife or the husband. That's the cross I have to bear. It's the job that I have. It's my boss. Folks, that, that doesn't even come close to the agony of the cross. Jesus is calling for a complete abandonment of self. And that just makes many of us in this room recoil right now. A complete abandonment of self. And in the world that is screaming all around us right now, you need to take care of yourself. You need to make sure that you are doing well. You need to make sure you're in a good place. The gospel screams, no, no, abandon it all to follow Jesus and let him care for you. He's not doing this to make us miserable, though. Jesus doesn't delight in having a bunch of people following him, dragging crosses around. He's not doing this to make us miserable, and he's not doing this to make us earn salvation. You know why he's doing this? Because when we die to self, then we're unencumbered to all the stuff that goes along with self. Have you ever figured out that you are the greatest source of your problems? Have you figured that out? It's a painful reality, isn't it? And what Jesus is calling us to is to abandon ourselves, to, to lose ourselves, only to find ourselves in him. This was, this was Paul's testimony. We, we don't have time, but let me look it up for you real quick and read it in Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul's testimony. Paul said this about his life. And he, after he details in Philippians 3 all the wonderful things that he was... 
I mean, it, basically it was the equivalent of, I was the 4.0 student in high school, I captained three sports teams, varsity four years, and was homecoming king or queen, and then I went off to college and graduated summa cum laude, and then I went into business and earned millions of dollars. This is the equivalent of what Paul's saying here. This is what Paul says after all of that. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Psychologists would hear him talking today and say, that boy ain't right. You know what I say? That's a guy whose life has been changed by the gospel. And that's what the gospel does. You see, discipleship, following Christ, being a Christian, however you want to put it, it is an all-in proposition. It's an all-in proposition. No one signs up for discipleship light. I'll take that class, Lord. Maybe three days a week I'll follow you, and the other four I'll rest. Yet that's the way we try to live our lives, isn't it? We either fully commit or we don't. And sadly, there are some of us in this room who are still trying to figure out that middle ground, and you haven't figured this out. There is no middle ground. You're either in or you're out. You're either following or you're not. You can't not follow but still follow. That just doesn't even sound right, does it? You're either following or you're not. And that's what Jesus' words here are saying. And so first, understand this. There is an incredibly high cost to discipleship. Then secondly, Jesus makes it personal. And in verses 28 to 33, he gives two illustrations that, that tell us, that scream to us, that we individually, personally, must sit down and count the cost of this. Unlike family finances and corporate budgets, <laughs> you and I can't do a cost analysis for somebody else in this. I can sit down and help you with your family finances. You don't want me to, though, because if you saw mine, you'd be like, no, near no help. <laughs> I was an accountant of a very former life, and I'm so glad I've left that life behind. Sorry, accountants in the room. I can do a cost analysis. I can do a budget. I understand them. I'm not proud of this. <laughs> but here's what Jesus says. Look at me. Look at me in verse 28. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first down and count the cost? Now, you built towers in this time for two reasons. Either you used it for storage or you used it for protection. And towers were kind of a, a way to show off your wealth to other people too. Right? Okay, well, I have a nice look at that tower that they're building. Why don't you ever build me a tower like that? That's what's going on here. But what you found was, was that there was plenty of families that got a big tower started, but they didn't get it finished. Now that's kind of shameful, isn't it? And so Jesus is saying this. We all need to understand that sacrifice is going to be required. There's a cost to be paid here. But don't undertake this without first considering whether or not you can get to the end. Whether you can get it done. 
And we have to understand that following Christ is a sacrifice and, and it's requiring a commitment. And you don't enter into a commitment with Jesus without first considering what you're committing to. So if we don't finish, it's shameful. And so the first illustration about the tower is, do I have enough to complete the task? And the answer for all of us is a what? None of us has enough to get to the task. That's the bad news. The good news is, in Christ, we can do all things. The second one he gives is, a, is of a king who's been provoked into war. And, and he sits down and he's like, I have these 10,000 soldiers. I know this guy's coming with 20,000. Uh, that's already a bad, a bad ratio right there. But can I overcome it with strategy? Can I overcome it with, with, with weather? Can I use something to my advantage? And he has, to, he has to weigh all the factors here. And he says this, if I don't have a good chance to win this fight, I'm going to take measures right now because I'm counting the cost. Jesus here is advocating for something that you and I, if you've been raised like me, in fact, how many of you were raised in church all your life? How many of you saw altar calls where we playing 28 verses of just as I am? And the pastor stood up there like, somebody's going to come, somebody's going to come. I feel it, I know it. Jesus is fighting against that right here. And here's why. Those were all emotional appeals to get somebody to come forward, to make somebody feel good, so that somebody left the church that morning saying, hey, I saw somebody come down the aisle. That's a good church. Right now, I'm offending probably a few people in our church. I'm sorry. The honest evaluation of a church isn't how many people walk forward. It's how many people are obeying Christ and following him and making disciples. I've been a part of those kinds of churches. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, I don't want some emotional decision that you're going to come and follow me. I want you to really sit down, evaluate the cost, and then make a choice to follow me, knowing that it's going to really hurt. When was the last time you heard an invitation like that? Come follow Jesus, and it may cost you your family. Come follow Jesus. You're going to have to abandon yourself. Come follow Jesus. You're going to have to give up that boyfriend or girlfriend that you know you shouldn't be dating right now. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You want to know why there's so many nominal Christians or Christians who are Christian in name only? It's because there's so many who didn't sit down and count the cost. Can I just be honest with you this morning, church? I would rather preach to a room full of people who don't claim Christ at all than those who are comfortable trying to play the middle ground. Amen. Jesus ends this up in verse 33 as if they didn't get it. He, he, he sums this all up. When you count the cost for yourself, look at verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about my teen years and how I was pushed and pushed to follow Christ. But no one ever told me to count the cost. Wouldn't it be better if we talked to our teens and our kids and we told them the true cost of following Jesus right up front? rather than to make them into hypocrites? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be? 
if we were just honest about this. Sometimes I think what we do as a church and as Christians in general is we just make Jesus so easy for them. And then when life gets hard, they're like, what? What? You mean this Jesus thing doesn't make life just magically, you know, wonderful? I've got news for you, people. Since I've come to Christ and followed him, I've had family members die. I've had fights with people. I've had people do bad stuff to me. And you could say the same thing, couldn't you? Jesus is not a magic elixir that makes all the bad stuff go away. He's just the friend who goes through the bad stuff with us and promises to get us to the other side. I read and read this text this week, and I could not figure out how 34 and 35 tied on to the end of this, but I just knew they had to. Because I'm like, Luke's a smart guy, right? And if I can't trust Luke, I can trust the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit put this right here, right? And honestly, the translation that I'm reading from doesn't help us. There is a good translation of this. It's the New American that leads into verse 34 with the word, therefore which tells us that it's referring back to the verses before it, right? And so, so in that translation, it says, therefore, salt is good. Which brings me to the third point. You thought I'd never get there. There is a long-term commitment to discipleship. Jesus expects us to be salty all the way through. What does the cost of discipleship have to do with salt? I'm so glad you asked. The committed disciple of Jesus is a salty person. <laughs> Not salty, angry. Okay, some of you are thinking, salty? Oh. <laughs> no. The person of Jesus, is a, the follower of Jesus is a salty person. Here's what I mean by that. What does salt do? Salt in this time was a preservative. Salt was a preservative. It absolutely was a necessity. And, and a committed follower of Jesus is a preservative. He is a flavoring. She is a flavoring in the world. Let's face it. Our world is a pretty dull place. And without the influence of Christ, it's really, it's really kind of tasteless, isn't it? The only way that salt loses its saltiness is if it's mixed with impurities. Did you know that? The only way that it loses its saltiness is if it's mixed with impurities. Most of the salt in Israel at this time came from the Dead Sea. Okay? Some of you still get Dead Sea cosmetics. Right? Because it's all that Dead Sea salt. Yeah, I really wonder if it came from there or not. Anyway. There, there is a problem, though, with Dead Sea salt. Not only was it a great supplier of salt, the Dead Sea, it was also a great supplier of gypsum. Gypsum, like we make drywall compound from. And if you didn't properly prepare the salt and you left some of the gypsum in there, guess what happened to the salt? It's worthless. It's worthless if it wasn't treated right. So Jesus here, when he's, when he's giving this illustration, they understand what they're talking about. Some of them had bought bad salt before. And, and bad salt is worthless. You can't do anything with it. it. It doesn't preserve. It doesn't even give good taste. And so what do you do with it? You, it's not even good, Jesus says in verse 35, for the manure pile. I mean, that's really bad if you're not even good for the manure pile, right? 
And he says it has to be thrown away. It has to be thrown away. And here's the thing. You're like, well, how is it that I'm supposed to be salty? Well, here's how we're salty. By loving Jesus so much that the love that we have for our family pales in comparison. You see, here's the thing that Jesus knows. And I didn't even mention this in the first part of the message. The more you love Jesus, the more you will love your family. Did you realize that? The more that you really love Jesus and follow him, the more that you will love your wife, husbands. The more that you love Jesus, wives, you will love your husband. You will love your children. Children, you will love your parents. You see, when you give Christ the priority, and whenever you're willing to pick up a cross and follow him, and you know that it can end up in death, and you're willing to do that, you are a salty person. You are different from most of the world. You really are. You're different. And you've heard me say it before, and it's true. And I know the own pressure in my own heart. I know it, that, that there is a part of us, every one of us, even though we would say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, yet I still want to be a little comfortable in the world. And are you waking up to this reality? It's playing out right in front of our eyes. It's no longer even comfortable to be a Christian in the United States of America. Praise God. Praise God. And I'm not saying that to be funny. It means that the pretending is going to stop and we're going to actually find out who are the sheep and who are the wolves. Salt is meant to last. Disciples of Jesus are meant to last. There's no such thing as being a temporary disciple. I'm going to sign up for the internship program here, Jesus. See if I like this or not. And then after two years, I'll make a commitment. It doesn't work that way. Notice Jesus' final words. Look with me at verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus doesn't say that with every message that he preaches. We don't have record of that. But when he does say that, he's really trying to make a point. <laughs> okay? If you're here listening to this and you got ears, listen. Carefully consider my words is what Jesus is saying. And here is what I think Jesus is saying to that audience and in turn to us this morning. Every single one of us, I don't care what your conversion story is. I don't care about what aisle you walked or where you got baptized or whatever. Are you right now, if you claim to be in Christ, are you giving Christ the priority that he deserves? Does your love for Jesus make your love for others look really dim? Have you determined that you're going to daily pick up a cross and follow him? That you're, picking up a cross means I'm dying to what I want to do. When you pick up the cross, you don't get to choose. Yes, Lord, but I want this. I want this part of my life. I'll pick up the cross and only do it for 80% of the time. If you just give me 20, it doesn't work that way. And are you going to follow him? Are you going to follow him? You see, I think... We need to do some risk-reward analysis. And let me help you to do that before we leave by turning to Matthew chapter 19. 
You know what risk-reward analysis is, right? How many of you ever considered buying something and you've sat down and done a pro and con? You ever done that? Okay. Jesus, Jesus doesn't hide the pros and cons here. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have this account of the rich young ruler who comes to see Jesus. Remember that account? I mean, this guy's got the world by the tail, and he, has, and he leaves. In verse 22, it says, when the young man heard this, when, he, when Jesus said in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. That's what Jesus says to him. He says to the rich young man, this is the one thing that this is holding this guy back. That may not be what's holding you back. Maybe what you're saying is, okay, God, I'll follow you, except I'm not going to give you my kids. They're mine. Okay, God, I'll follow you, but I'm not going to give you my career. It's mine. In this guy's case, it was his possessions. And so when he walks away sad, Jesus says this in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can I submit to you that it's only with difficulty will anybody who has a heart idol enter into the kingdom of heaven? And every single one of us deals with heart idols. Jesus goes on to say, verse 24, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? I'm so glad this verse is in the scripture. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Here's the thing, if you're holding on to stuff today and you don't think you can let them go, and you can't, but God can help you to let them go. And notice the risk-reward now, because Peter, as we would expect, Peter asked the question. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Like, how audacious, Peter, that you would ask the question, What's in it for us? That's basically the question, is it not, church? What's in it for me? What's in it for us? Here's Jesus being good and telling us what's in it for us. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, where the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Stop there. How many of you can't wait to get there? In that world, you will have followed me. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will inherit a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. For many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Here's what Jesus is saying. You give it all up to follow me and I will reward you. You've heard me bash that statement, your best life now. There is no such thing as your best life now. If this is your best life, you are a woeful person. Amen. Your best life, if you're in Christ, is to come. Amen. And it's promised and it's guaranteed in Matthew 19 by the very one who died for us to buy our, our salvation. He guarantees it there in Matthew 19. Here's the thing, will you believe it? Will you believe it enough to abandon it all and follow him? Will I believe it enough to abandon it all and follow him? There's not going to be any tear jerking get you down the aisle. It's time for you and me to count the cost and then to live it out as soon as we leave this place, right? Father, what an incredible price. 
But what an incredible promise. We long for the day. We long for the day when, when we literally will be with Christ as he rules and reigns. Help us to be faithful in our following of Jesus now. For those in this room that don't know Jesus as their Savior, may they truly count the cost today. May they understand that there is a price to be paid. Cross-bearing is not easy, it's not fun, but it is certainly rewarded in the life to come. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying on a cross for us. Thank you for giving us the strength, those of us who are carrying our crosses, to carry our cross daily. May we walk by faith and not by sight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.